This episode of Shaun of the South is brought to you by Case Knives, America's foremost manufacturer of premium knives. Case Knives have been treasured items that have been passed down in my family for generations. So this Christmas, put down the phone, shut off the TV, and go outside and get your hands dirty. Keep your hands sharp with a case knife. Hey, you are listening to Shaun of the South, and I'm your host tonight, Shaun Dietrich. And man, we've got a great show here for you. Behind me here on the stage, you see these wonderful-looking gentlemen. This is the Corn and Potato String Band, everybody. The Corn and Potato String Band.
a little bit of our mail this evening, a little bit of our mail sent in to us from listeners all over the country who had nothing better to do than to put pen to paper and write us because they listen to our show each week uh, or sent in to us by people who are asking us to cease and desist because they, they do not like hearing what we have to say. Our first letter comes from Anna in Columbia, Tennessee. Sean, you always say at the end of your shows to write you about any announcements that may be happening in our world. And, well, I have a big one for you. My grandmama is turning 80 years old this month. Now, I know Kristen the Eight Decade Hill may seem impressive. And in and of itself, it is. But nothing can be as extraordinary as my grandmama. Meet Miss Marie. Should you happen to flip open a dictionary to define a quintessential Southern woman, her name would be listed in bold print. And beside it would be listed either, did you get enough to eat? Or, good Lord, because these are her favorite life quotes. Over the course of her 80 years, she's known what it's like to have little and she's known what it's like to have plenty. She's always smiling. She doesn't know a stranger. The last attribute that I said work comes from working at Ted Sporting Goods, our hometown gym since 1977 here in Columbia. I'm telling you, Sean, the lady can show you exactly what gun you need, fly rod to snag a fish, or Boy Scout gear to get, and then turn around and have a table full of the best country cooking you have ever tasted. She recently had her knee replaced and has become one of your fans during her recovery. Probably because she couldn't change the radio dial. (laughs) She would always be saying, I wonder what Sean's saying today. I wonder what Sean's saying today. Anyway, I know this is probably too long for you to read over there. But if you could just wish Miss Marie a happy birthday, I know she'd be thrilled. Thanks for all you do, Sean. We love you. And the next time you're in Columbia, stop by Grandmama's for Sunday dinner. Dear Miss Marie and dear Miss Marie's granddaughter, Anna, in Columbia, Tennessee, from everybody here tonight, I'd like to wish you a happy 80th birthday. (laughs) Jacob W., New York City, New York. Sean, I'm 22, and I'm living on my own for the first time in my life. Christmas time is beautiful here in the city. It really is, but I miss my home in Fairhope, Alabama. And I just wanted to message you because your show reminds me a little bit of home. I will be visiting Alabama in the next few weeks for Christmas, and I'll get to see my family again and hug my mother's neck. I've never been excited like this to go home. Your buddy, Jacob W., stuck here in New York. Dear Jacob, may your trip be everything you need it to be. And may you gather enough strength to make it back there in the Big Apple. Blair from Staunton, Virginia. I was in a restaurant a few days ago with an old friend of mine. And when we finished eating, we saw somebody come through the door. And it was her ex-husband. And he came walking in with a much younger woman on his arm. And my friend just about died. It was the worst feeling I know for her to see him living life with this new person while her life is still devastated after what they'd been through together. And so we talked about what we ought to do about this. My suggestion was to do the opposite of what felt right in the moment. And let me tell you, Sean, what felt right would have been setting that man on fire and watching him burn. (laughs) Instead, Sean... 
My friend left 50 bucks to go toward their meal anonymously. And we left without him even seeing us. I do wish, however, I could have seen the look on his face when he realized that someone bought his meal. Anyway, I just thought you'd like to know about that. Dear Blair, thank you so much for sharing that. Peter Crompton, Gaston, Alabama. When you're raising kids, you never stop to think about that they are little tiny humans who might be smarter than you are yourself. My son is a lot smarter than me, even though that's hard for me to admit. After I had a minor heart attack, my son, who's only 14 years old, took up road biking, and I know he didn't do it for his own health. He did it for mine. And it became something we could do together. He didn't give me a choice in the matter. I went riding with him all over. We've done a few century rides together now while I'm riding this. And that means we rode 100 miles together. It was a valuable experience I wouldn't trade for the world. My son was bound and determined to save my life through physical fitness. And even though he's a few generations younger than me, he did something for me that I don't know if I'd have done for my old man. Merry Christmas to all your listeners who are listening tonight, of which I am one, your pal Peter. Dear Peter, Merry Christmas to you. Jacob, Avalon, California. My mother's from Louisiana, and she started listening to your show a few months ago. And in her Christmas card last week, she told us to listen to your show for a special treat. And there you were, reading my name over the air. So I just want to say thanks. I might never listen to your show again. But nevertheless, I wanted to say Merry Christmas to my mother. William from Peachtree City, Georgia. My best friend just turned 40 last night. And it was weird, to say the least. It was a wild party. We had all the usual gag gifts. Walkers, canes, and toilet bowl extenders. But when the party was over, he came to me and said, Hey. You know, I really do feel like I'm getting closer to death, and it kind of scares me. And Sean, we had a long talk out on the sidewalk about deep things. And when we finished, we gave each other a big hug that lasted for a long time. I keep getting this feeling that life is so much shorter than we think it is when we're younger. And the only things that matter in this life are friends and family. That's what I believe. Larry Wilcox, Prairie Village, Kansas. My dad used to have this great expression he'd say during Christmas. There's nothing as cruel as giving a child something practical and useful at Christmas. (laughs) But hey, that's what he did. He always gave us practical things we didn't want because they were useful. Because that's how he grew up. He grew up with very, very little. One year, he undid all this. And we were so surprised to find that he'd bought us a trampoline. And there it was, set up in the backyard. He'd stayed up all night, even though it was ten below zero, putting together that huge trampoline with my mom. We were freaked out when we saw it out there. Our first question was, are you dying or something? (laughs) We couldn't believe he was giving us something fun to play with. But he told us that he just wanted us to be happy, and that's all he ever wanted us to be. I'll never forget how much that Christmas meant. He wanted us to have the things in life he'd never had. Uh, Anyway, he's been gone for three years and it sucks really bad at Christmas time. 
This year I've decided, though, in his honor, to give my kids pants and school supplies in memory of my dad. I only hope my kids will forgive me. Miss Chandler Sims from Boone, North Carolina. My friend has a granddaughter. She just had her a few nights ago. I know I shouldn't be jealous, but I am. You see, I was never able to have kids, and I wanted to adopt when I was a young woman, but at the time, I was married to a man who just didn't want that for himself. So, I went through life without children. For the most part, I've put that out of my mind, but you never do fully put it out of your mind. And so, when my friend called to tell me about her new granddaughter, all those old feelings came back, and it broke my heart all over again. I kind of felt wronged and a little bit angry with myself because I've let people boss me around in my life. But there is a point to this letter, and it's not just to make you feel sad. I'm married to a strong man who has a big family. And about 26 years ago, his wife died, and I was lucky enough to meet him. We got married. He had three kids, and I helped raise them. Now, they don't call me mom or anything, but I think they love me like one. I love them so much, they might as well be mine. If you read this over the air, tell people, though, to remember that you don't have to be a blood parent to love someone with all your heart. There are lots of kids out there who don't have blood parents, and there's a lot of parents out there who don't have blood kids. Anyway, Merry Christmas, Sean. Merry Christmas, Miss Chandler Sims. I have a prayer that I'd like to offer for all those who find themselves familyless at Christmas time. May you find yourself someone who needs you as much as you need them. And may you love one another without strings attached nor ideas of personal gain in your mind. May you enjoy the pleasure of someone's company and find the love you thought you might have lost. But most of all, May you find something underneath the tree that is practical and completely useful. And that's letters from our listeners. We're going to have another tune here from the Corn and Potatoes String Band, everybody. The Corn and Potatoes String Band. Thank you. 
I do love it this time of year more probably than any other time of year because I'm a sucker for Christmas. I'm also a sucker for, for cold weather. Of course, our cold weather doesn't get to be very cold. Yesterday, I looked on the television and the weatherman was predicting 49 degree weather. Now that, to us, in this part of the world, is in fact very cold. It's cold enough to cancel school and go outside and make snow angels in the red mud. But it's as cold as we get, and I'm satisfied with it because it does feel like winter. I like to be able to wear a winter coat, and down here in the south, you can only do that for about uh, 10 days a year. That's enough for me, though. That's enough. 49 degrees. I love it. A few nights ago, I was watching a children's choir perform in Pensacola, Florida. The children's choir was perfect. They sang with all their heart. And I was just I was mesmerized by the little kids on the front row who were singing with rosy cheeks and had them white choir robes on with black collars. It was magical. Nothing sounds like Christmas like a children's choir. I was in the children's choir from back as early as I can remember in church. I was in the children's choir. Our choir director, Miss Simpson, she was a, a woman with a 50-foot beehive hairdo that, that got so tall that when she walked through the door, she had to duck down. <laughs> and she'd stand up there before the kids' choir, and she'd wave her hands backward and forward, back and forth. I asked her once, I said, why are you waving your hands like that? She said, well, i got to be doing something while I'm up here. People don't think I'm even necessary. <laughs> and so she'd wave her hands back and forward. And and, and it turned out that she never had a single music lesson in all her life, didn't know a thing about music. And once she turned around and she actually sang a passage of music for us, and she had a terrible voice. (laughs) But, but in the Southern Baptist Church, you take what you get, even if it's not the best thing that you ever had. And my first time singing in front of church, I had to learn a song called There'll Be No Thorns in His Crown. Now, I wasn't the first choice of singer. The pastor used to put numbers in a big old hat, and he'd draw them out, and he would select who would be executed that week. And then you, 
because you had a duty to your fellow Christian man, would get up on that stage and while Miss Betty would play the piano, she would, she would hammer out some sort of rhythm. You would sing and you would do your best. And sometimes you got a very lot of singers. My cousin Ed Lee, for instance, got up on the stage and he sang a little bit. He sounded like, he sounded like a skunk just before it gets run over by an 18 wheel. <laughs> My father had sang once. Boy, that was interesting. He, he, he delivered a song that was called My Tribute. It sounded a lot like the sound Mr. Ed makes after they rub peanut butter all over his upper lip to get him to talk for the camera. <laughs> My turn to sing that Sunday, I was, I was giving it all I had. And I was actually not bad. I was actually not so bad. So they had me come back the next week and I sang. And I became known as a little bit of a singer in my church. Of course, there are worse things to be known as. I wasn't a particularly gifted child. I, I was never handsome. I was chubby and, and I had awkward features. I had a painfully big overbite. I wasn't a bright student. I was not athletic. I tried out for the football team one time, and that man came from across the field and hit me so hard it sounded like he cracked my rib and ruined my chances of ever having children. I hit the ground, and the coach came up from behind me, and he did something that all coaches have been doing since the beginning of time that makes no earthly sense to me when you get the wind knocked out of you. He lifted me up by my belt, and he jingled me above the ground like a sleigh bell. He said, breathe, breathe. Uh, if I could have talked, I would have said, that's what I've been trying to do. <laughs> yes, I wasn't a very... A very exceptional child, but I could sing. I could sing. And when I'd get in front of a, an audience uh, in the Baptist church, I would sing songs like, What a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. And at Christmas time, I would sing songs like, it came upon a midnight clear That glorious song of old Amangers bending near the earth To touch their hearts of gold Peace on the earth goodwill to men of heaven's gracious King. The world in solemn stillness lay to hear the angels sing. And I have a memory of my father good memory of my father whenever I sing. I have a memory of him sitting by the fireplace stabbing a poker at the flames and the hickory logs are making popping sounds and the sparks are flying outward into the living room onto that leather mat he always put in front of the fireplace. He was hypnotized by a fire and I could just see him sitting in that fireplace. The Christmas tree was beside us, a balsam fir he'd cut down himself and we decorated with all sorts of things like strings of popcorn and, and bright shiny bulbs dating back to my mother's family who ordered them in the Caesar Roebuck catalog. 
And he was humming a song. He was humming a song. I said, what's that? And he said something to me in a language I didn't understand. Now, my father came from German ancestry. His parents were first-generation Americans, and his grandparents were Germans. He told me a story about his ancestors who came off the boat, and they had nothing. They'd given everything they had to come across that great pond to the land of America. And when they were together, their little family, that Christmas, they had to make do in a boarding house. And it was, it was Gottlieb Dietrich, my ancestor, with his children around him and his wife next to him, who sang in that little boarding house bedroom to his children. He sang a song in German to keep their spirits high. And they drank coffee that was made out of coffee grounds placed into boiling water back in the days before coffee filters. They would crack an egg once the water started boiling and they would whip it up in a cup and make it into a scrambled egg. And they'd pour that scrambled egg mixture into the coffee grounds so that when the egg coagulated, it would capture the coffee grounds and you would simply spoon out that mixture with the coffee grounds stuck to the egg and you would throw it away and you would drink coffee that faintly tasted like egg. Egg and coffee. And once you get used to this, it kind of starts to to work its way into your soul and your memory. you, You do it from time to time just to remember loved ones you've lost. And in that little boarding house room, my father told me that his ancestor, Gottlieb Dietrich, said to his children, they said to his children, and you know it really is so true. <laughs> he said, I'm just so proud to be here. Years later, years later, the illustrious Minnie Pearl would say this in English to her audience at the Ryman Auditorium on that Christmas. Gottlieb Dietrich looked at his children and said, Stille Nacht, Heilige Nacht, alles schlaft, einsam wacht. Ich bin stoß er zu schein. And my father told me that. I'll never forget it. Sitting there with him at that fireplace, I felt like I could touch my ancestors somehow. They were going to have a uh, community choir one year at our church. Community choir. All the kids and all the adults wanted to be in this choir, but you had to audition to get into it. It's a very, very serious affair. They didn't just let anybody in. And I wanted to be in this choir. So my father told me to learn a piece, and he'd take me to the audition. So I learned, Oh, Little Town of Bethlehem. That was my song. I showed up to that church with my father after after he got home from work one night, and there was a lady sitting in the front pew. She was holding a clipboard. She was just looking at me. I got up onto that stage after Adam, my buddy Adam, had tried out, and she'd given him a frown when he started singing. I knew my chances were slim, but I've been working on it, and I sang O Little Town of Bethlehem. And she interrupted me while I was singing. She came to the stage. She said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Thank you very much for, for trying, but we're looking for something else. 
And I looked into the back of the room. I saw my father storming down the center aisle. He had his hat, his baseball hat on to cover up his messy hair, and his face was covered in welding soot and smudges. He was wearing denim and boots, and he looked like he was coming to pick a fight with an umpire. My father coached Little League all my life, and so I knew that look on his face. And he said, excuse me, ma'am, excuse me. Now, you listen here. My boy's been working on that song for a long time, and he's been, he's been singing it good. He's just nervous as all. Now, you give him another chance, I demand it. He looked at me, and he looked at her. And that woman gave him a look like his wheels were turning, but the hamsters were dead. sat back down and my father looked at me and he pointed he said now you go ahead you sing it like you did it this morning for me sing it son and I remembered what he told me before I went to this audition while I was so nervous he'd squatted down in front of me and he tussled my hair and he said listen you can do this don't be scared you sing it and you sing it with all your heart just like Mickey Mantle would go up to the plate and knock one out of the park so I sang it again for her and I did the best I could and I did a lot better that time I didn't knock it out of the park per se but I did hit, a, hit an infield double and that woman stood and she looked at me and she smiled she said well now if you'd have sang it that way to begin with I would have given you a part of the soloist which is exactly what I'm doing right now I said you're giving me the part of a soloist she said you can thank your father son I walked out of that place and I was 80 feet tall. My father took me in the truck across the town to get a chili dog because that's what we did when we celebrated. These chili dogs were not made from legal meat. They were, they were made from meat particles that nobody really knew what they were and they came out of the, the boiling pot just a little bit too unnaturally red and the chili they placed on top of it was also made of some unidentifiable substance. Those chili dogs will be in my intestines until the second coming of Elvis Presley. But they were good. They were good. And we ate that chili dog when my father said, you can do this. I'm so proud of you. And it took a lot of rehearsing. I would rehearse in the kitchen with my mother's guidance every afternoon while she made supper. She would listen to me and she would offer me pointers even though she knew nothing about music whatsoever. She'd say things like, no, no, I think that last part needs to be a whole lot stronger. And I think, uh, I think you need to not pronounce your R's so hard. You know, pronounce them soft. Only a flat-out hick pronounces his R's. And it's true. When you sing a song, it's proper to, to pronounce the R's on the end of words like power and fire. You pronounce them very soft like power and fire. If you pronounce the R, the R too hard, it sounds like you ought to be singing in a honky-tonk behind a chicken wire fence. So I worked on this song. I really did. And on the night of the big performance, my father came speeding into the driveway 15 minutes late. He came kicking gravel up behind his tires. He kicked open the door. My mother flew off the porch. She was carrying my choir robe wrapped in plastic on a hanger. She just steamed it. And she looked at my father and she said, You're filthy. You can't go like that. My father had soot all over his cheeks and his denim was stained with sweat and dust. He was wearing a baseball cap to cover up his messy hair and he smelled 
bad, like something that had been passed through the system of an old decrepit goat. <laughs> he said, ain't no time to change. I, I, we got to go. Come on, sport, get in the car. I got in the car. We sped through the night. My father didn't say a word. He was gripping the steering wheel tight. And I knew what he was feeling because I was feeling a triple dose of it myself. Nerves. We pulled up to this huge Presbyterian church, tall. It just reached upward into the night, and it was adorned by the stars on the dark violet sky. And my father turned the truck off, and he said, how you doing? I said, I'm sick to my stomach. He said, you're going to do fine. You're going to do fine. I want you to listen to me. Singing's just like baseball. Just like baseball. You get up to the plate. You relax, you follow through, you might get a few strikes, but nobody will ever remember your strikes once you get a hit. Now you're going to go in there, and you're going to knock that sucker out of the park for me like my little Mickey Mantle. You hear me? And I almost puked all over his boots. We walked into that sanctuary, past the people who were wearing their three-piece suits and their satin dresses and pearls and heels, and I was accompanied by my father, a working-class man in leather boots that clomped on the floor of that fine sanctuary. We got into that little choir room, and the, the room was filled with people in white robes who were dressing, and they were, they were warming their voices up, staring at folding books of music, men, women, and children. And the choir director saw him come in, and she said, you're late. She was tapping her watch. She said, you almost ruined this whole performance. I don't have another backup soloist. And she gave my father a tongue lashing, and he took it. He took it like a man. He just ducked his head down, removed his hat, and he listened to every word he said, she said, and he said, ma'am, I'm sorry. She left him. She said, get him ready. We're about to go on five minutes. My father placed that choir robe over my head. He spit on his hands, and he fixed my hair till it looked like I'd been dipped in Thousand Island salad dressing and lit on fire with a butane blowtorch. <laughs> he waked at me. He said, knock it out of the park. I went into that huge sanctuary with the three-story tall windows. Three counties were in that room for the community choir. There's an orchestra pit ahead of us. Men and women holding large wooden instruments and woodwind instruments and French horns and trombones and bassoons and timpanies. And they were standing right there looking at the choir as we walked in. They were wearing tuxedos with cummerbunds. And the choir themselves, we were all dressed. Uh, choir robes, 400 of us. The children stood up front and then the tenors and the altos and the sopranos and the baritone basses. And we all gathered together holding our books. And that choir director took a platform and she waved her hands in the air. And this woman knew what she was doing. She wasn't anything like Miss Simpson. And then it was my turn to sing. She beckoned me on stage to come to that little microphone. And I came to the microphone. The orchestra swelled. I saw the cello players and the viola players bow their instruments. And the music came to that part that was my cue. I'd been practicing for weeks and I completely choked. 
I completely blanked out. I couldn't remember what I was supposed to sing. And so I did nothing. I looked at that choir director and she about passed a kidney stone right there on the stage. (laughs) The music came to a crashing halt. The choir all looked at each other with nervous looks on the faces and the choir director just held this gaze at me with these large eyes that were the size of tractor tires. I heard someone on the front row of that audience start to giggle and I heard a man behind me in the choir jingle the change in his pockets and the world was crashing in one brick at a time. I was starting to feel faint. I looked upward into that balcony. I saw my father. He was on the front row leaning onto the railing, his soot-covered face and his denim and his boots. And I could see his white smile all the way from the stage a mile away. And it was an unmistakable look on his face. It was pride because his little boy was on the stage fixing to sing something. And I forgot where I was altogether. Forgot where I was. And I closed my eyes. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. By the time I reached the second verse, The music from the orchestra had not started, but they had stood up in their pit and they began singing along with me, a cappella. And the choir behind me started singing, a cappella. And the choir director herself had even gotten over her near-death experience. And she was singing with me too. And from the back of that sanctuary, that large Presbyterian sanctuary, I saw one tiny little candlelight light another candle and then another one and then another one until the room was filled with a million tiny little lights stretching from the back of the room all the way to the front and when the performance was over my father met me backstage he placed his hand on my shoulder he said you done good grand slam done good and then he took me in his truck across town to get one of them chili dogs we sat on the tailgate it was cold wrapped in our jackets I was still wearing my choir robe we looked up at the sky we looked up at the sky and my father my father ate that chili dog in earnest and I'll never forget it I said, what are you thinking? He wiped his mouth with his sleeve, got the chili off his chin, and he said, Ich bin stolz erzuschein. And then, he told me that he used to do a little singing when he was a boy himself, long before the ravages of testosterone had ruined his voice and turned him into a working class man. And he started singing. 
stille Nacht, heilige Nacht, alles schlacht, einsam wacht, nur das Traurig und heilige much for having me tonight. It's been a wonderful pleasure. Merry Christmas to everybody. Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening to Sean of the South. I've been your host today, Sean Dietrich. And man, it's been a bona fide pleasure if I do say so myself. This episode was brought to you by Case Knives, a tradition of my family dating back to my granddaddy, who once said the only way to cure idle hands is to build something. So keep your hands sharp this holiday season with a Case Knife. That wonderful music you heard behind me today was the Corn Potato String Band. These guys have earned high praise in American music all over the U.S., Canada, Europe, Mexico, and India. They're multi-instrumentalists dedicated their lives to country music and dance traditions of the central and southern U.S. In addition to being champion fillers, they play guitar, bass, mandolin, and anything else you can think of. Do yourself a favor and visit cornpotato.com. While there, take the time to drop them a line to say hello and download their album. If you get a chance, you won't regret it. To find anything more about what I do, you can visit seanofthesouthshow.com. There you can find archived episodes dating back to our very first one to this one you just heard. And while you're there, I hope you take the time to drop me a line and tell me about your birthday now bar mitzvah, wedding invitations, church potluck socials, and ice cream events, and I'll do my best to read them over the air if I'm so inclined, because I love to do that stuff for my friends. Speaking of friends, friends, the only difference between a northern and a southern fairy tale is a northern fairy tale starts off once upon a time. A southern fairy tale starts off, y'all ain't gonna believe this. Adios. Mm-hmm.